Are you trying to find the perfect distribution platform to get your music on Spotify and Apple? I personally use and love DistroKid. Go to mixingmusicpodcast.com backslash DistroKid to get a small discount and get access to a platform with unlimited uploads for a yearly fee. Happy uploading and enjoy the show. to the Mixing Music Podcast. I'm your host, DK, and with me, as always, is my lovely co-host. Well, you said lingerie, lingerie Lou, but maybe, maybe we'll just go like, <laughs> Lou. <laughs> Lou. Lou. Just keeping it classic. Uh, either I'm like somebody's Uncle Lou that just like doesn't really do much. No, we're just going to stick with Uncle Lou. Uncle, Uncle Lou. Uncle Lou is good. Uncle Lou. <laughs> Uncle Lou, that's creepy as fuck. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, am I on a registry? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. <laughs> All right, well, welcome back to the Mix of Music podcast. This is the podcast where we help you make a full-time, try try to pivot into a career with audio as an en- engineer, maybe even as a producer. Um, yeah, we help with hobbyists. Sure, we give technical thoughts for hobbyists. Um, if you want more technical mixing mastering tips, you can go to mixingmusicpodcast.com slash exclusive for the exclusive episodes, which are always techniques to use while mixing and mastering. Um, for $4 a month or, sorry, $4 a month or $40 a year, you can get three times the amount of episodes every single week. Um, once again, that's mixingmusicpodcast.com slash exclusive. Today is another one for your career. This is, I think, is really important. Suggested to- topic by one of our assistants, James Parrish. Shout out to you again. He was the one that recommended the, the five mistakes, the 10 mistakes that we've made in our careers. This time, we're going to talk about different times that we've pivoted in our lives, in our careers, yeah. and how that's affected um, our careers in general. I think that there's lots of takeaways from this. I think that you may be considering pivoting. You may be considering moving away from different things or moving towards different things. Um, and so I want to talk about that. I'm going to start off first. Um, there was actually, I've, I've pivoted a bunch of times and it wasn't until a few years ago that I officially, no, even then the last few years, I, I kind of did like small pivots, but I had a couple major, major pivots. The mm. first pivot was when I decided to do music. Yeah. I don't know about you. And I know a lot, a lot of people that do this for a living. They knew. And since they were like five, like I was called to do this. I was born. God told me whatever. Um, for me, I didn't realize that I wanted to do music. I actually wanted to be a therapist, a psychologist specifically, mm. um, until I was about 19 I was sitting on the toilet and I had an epiphany that I realized I wouldn't I wouldn't want to talk to people and be a human garbage can for money. Yeah. Oh, like I, for free. Sorry, for free. I wouldn't want to do that for free. And for some reason, I was just so weird. I was in a weird mood that I thought if I was helping people for money, I'm not and, and not for free, then am I, do I really care about helping people? And yeah. then I thought about the things that helped me, and, and I remembered how much music helped me emotionally when I was young. So I pivoted. In that moment, I decided for sure I'm going to make music work no matter what because it is, a for me, a scalable way of helping people overcome their troubles and problems. Mm-hmm. It's very scalable. If I can help make positive music in this world, or even if it's not positive, even if it's something angsty or angry, it's like that. Those are important feelings to acknowledge as well. Yeah. Now, music is therapy for many, many people, including myself. Um, I would go as far as to say music saved my life multiple times. And um, for me, that was my first major pivot. Do you remember when you got into music? I do. 
Um, and it's kind of weird. Did you weird. always wanted to do music? What, what did you want to do? So I remember being the fifth grader, um, like memorizing song lyrics and everything just because I really liked it. And, I, and it's kind of funny because I always like lead back to Anthony Hamilton. He was like the first one that really popped out to me. Um, but it's one of those where like I started wanting to go to school for music, like like music focused, like private schools. So you knew from from fifth grade? Yeah. That I was that into music. Like, I started learning how to play trumpet and all that kind of stuff. I sucked at it. I'm not going to lie. I was a really bad trumpeter. Like, if you ask me to press my lips together and squeeze, I can. But it's not going to be very good. That's so interesting. I feel like I've always liked music, too, from a young yeah. age like that. But I just didn't even consider it as a career option. Yeah. It's more like, I like music. Haha. <laughs> That's fun. I didn't like think it was going to like I didn't consider it a career. Yeah. Like in 10th grade, I was taking like guitar lessons at uh, Ramona Hall with um, I think his name was Raul was my guitar teacher. So you wanted to be like a rock star. Like you were not ready. a rock you were star. Thinking but, about, I mean, you were thinking yeah. about a career at the age of five. Like this is my dream job is to do not music. at the age of five, fifth grade. Sorry, fifth grade. Yeah. You, you're, you were already thinking to the level of career. Not just yeah. like something that I really like. like. It yeah, it's like, like I want to be educated in this. Mm. Yeah. Um, which kind of brings it to my first pivot point, which was like, you know, in high school, I played Battle of the Bands and stuff like that. Um, and I started learning like the dynamic of playing in bands and things of that nature. After high school, we were playing shows and doing as much as we can to the point where like we got opportunities and we lost some opportunities because we just didn't have recordings available. So... One of the pivoting points for me was after spending so much money and time selling my gear and stuff like that, trying to afford to be able to like record and do things properly, after trying to plan our own events and everything, I actually opened my first studio. So um, you went from musician to... To studio, studio. operator yeah. and owner. Um, and all of this happened after I was like trying to really take it seriously and trying to be seen as more of a, of a professional. So like before the studio, I was like recording people at their house. I had a 57 and a Tascam US100 interface on my Sony Vio with two gigs of RAM and stuff. We're running a, a Cubase 5. And the funny thing is like, Nobody ever really questioned me on the setup, and I should probably take more note of that. Uh, they were just like, 57 for guitars? Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, the rest of it was just minor details. But, like, I was out there actively trying to record people. But I always felt shady because I was, like, recording in somebody's living room with their cat running around or their dog barking in the background. It's called imposter syndrome, dude. It feels shady. <laughs> yeah. But, like, um, the first pivot was, like, I feel like I need a studio because when I go to big studios with my clients, they're much happier. They're, they feel much more confident when they come to my broken window garage to record. Um, you know, they don't seem very confident and seem to ask a lot of more questions about like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure? And obviously I was young. I was like 21 when I opened my first studio. So no, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but opening the studio it was like a huge change for me. I ended up like spending like the first week there. I think I spent like 80 hours in the studio, really just trying to make it perfect, setting up the desk, setting up the speakers, showing it off to clients. And like that, that really gave me a whole mindset change. Like that, that was a huge pivot on my end where it's like, I don't feel like an amateur as much anymore. I've, I finally have my own space. Yeah. Yeah. So that's amazing. And then for me, yeah, so you were a musician first, transitioned into being a studio owner operator, right? Mm -hmm. For me, I never thought I'd work in the studio. I didn't realize that. Um, when I decided to do music, I wanted to be a rock star. I said that out loud. I like did affirmations every single day. I made my band do it too. And we were like a funk band. I had eight people in my band, including myself. Yeah. 
Uh, one guitar, one keys, one bass, uh, and a full horn section. Nice. So that's about eight people, right? Three people, three horns, keys, guitar, bass, me. Uh, seven. Yes. Who am I missing? Maybe a second guitar player we had at one point. Anyway, regardless, there's about seven or eight people in my band, um, and I was the leader of it. Uh, I was gonna be a rock. I was wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to go on tour. I wanted to do all this stuff. We got. Uh, we won a battle of the bands for like a big radio station, like the biggest uh, for an iHeart radio thing. Um, they paid for an all expenses paid trip to meet with the head of A&R of Republic Records in California. That was the first time I nice. went to Los Angeles. So I went out to, I think it was in Santa Monica area, right by mm-hmm. the beach, right by the Universal Studios and Republic offices mm-hmm. uh, for Universal Music and Republic offices. Met with the vice president of A&R, like the two of the biggest guys in A&R, the same people that signed and managed Post Malone, Ariana Grande, nice. Ke- you know, yeah. Drake, all of those people. I was sitting in that office. We did really well. I mean, um, I'm singer, songwriter, producer here. Um, just totally fucking bombed that interview. Just bombed it. Yeah. And I have other podcast episodes where I talk more deeply about this. Um, and it really affected me more than I, I, I'd love to admit. Mm-hmm. It really affected me. And I lost a lot of confidence. Um, and I realized, one, I had other priorities. I wanted to have a family eventually. And going on tour wouldn't really be good for that. Yeah. You know, um, maybe that was just a rationalization to give up on my dreams. Um, but my dreams changed. And this, this here comes my second pivot mm-hmm. is I decided that I liked helping other artists. Like I wasn't able to believe in myself all the way. And that mm-hmm. was part of the reason why I bombed the, the interview is because there was an obvious lack of self-belief, confidence. I wasn't mm-hmm. like delusionally confident and yeah. I should have been. I was too humble. Um, and I wanted to help other delusionally confident artists actually finish their songs and to sound really good. So I yeah. became, I became, I accepted this role as like the healer in, <laughs> in a, in a team M- MRPG, yeah. you know, like I was the healer role and I wanted to help other people finish songs. And I really, really loved the idea of finishing songs. I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time. Um, then I, before that, that's when I decided to pivot and I actually by luck, and this wasn't on purpose. When I was 22, I opened my own studio. I didn't share it with anybody else. I had three rooms to myself. I was paying rent by myself. I had a business partner. Um, he was supposed to take out the loan and get the, cause the, the person that previously owned that spot or rented that spot had about $20,000 worth of equipment. He would just want to get out of the music industry completely. He's now a big videographer and he sells like classes on video and lighting and stuff like that. He's actually doing fairly well from what I understand. Um, But he sold everything and bought one camera. So we paid him $20,000 and he bought one camera. So he was going to take on that loan. My business partner was going to take on that loan. And then at the last minute, like I was just going to be an engineer. I was going to be an employee. Yeah. And at the last minute, I decided, nah, this is too big of an opportunity. I was the one that took on that liability. Yeah. Bought, and I was already working at Guitar Center at the time, so mm-hmm. I had a lot of equipment. I've been saving up for a long time, got a lot of discounts. Um, I sold everything, paid that loan back as soon as I can, and then um, just took on this studio and decided that I was going to be an engineer of yeah. some capacity. I didn't, know, I didn't quite understand what it meant to be a producer. I didn't quite understand what it meant to be an engineer. I didn't even really may not have known the difference between a mix engineer and a recording engineer. I just knew that I liked mixing. I liked recording. I liked helping people like finish mm-hmm. songs. 
And that was my first major pivot. What was your first major pivot after? So you went from musician to studio owner. Yeah. Let's go back to your story. Was it, what was the next pivot uh, after that? Leaving said studio for a private engineer life. Uh, not private as in working for somebody specifically, but just deciding that I don't need to be locked into this studio. Uh, reason that this was a big deal. So you deal, went full freelance. Full freelance instead of having my own studio. And uh, this one took a couple years because I had that studio with uh, with my business partners for quite a while. But I started noticing how I had no clue what it took to manage an efficient studio on that level. Not necessarily that it was bad, but... Um, no, neither did I when I started yeah. my studio. Yeah, nobody no knows. It's your first business. You're, you're bound to fuck up. That's why the government's like, yeah, we'll give you the first two years to get your taxes in order, dude. <laughs> like, Wait, uh, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. That is not real. No, no, no. It's not. No, you have to get your taxes Yes, you do. <laughs> but like, they're looking at you like, you made no money? None? Uh, that's normal. That's in a normal. year? Two years? Uh, like, Amazon yeah. still doesn't make money, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> but like, the funny thing is this. Like, um, you... You kind of go from owning a studio like I did, where it's in a building with a bunch of known people. Like the game, the rapper was my neighbor for five years, um, which was cool. Um, what ended up happening is I ended up training a couple of his engineers, like a lot of his team, his interns that were kind of coming up, trying to be his next engineer, blah, blah, would come over and be like, Lou, they asked me to do this. How do I do this? And it's like, no worries. Come on, let's go into the room real quick. I'll show you what you need to do. How do I do a reverse reverb? This is how you do it. You know, and like the cool thing is like, I and at this time you were like learning too. So like, this wasn't like, this wasn't like information that you knew and you taught them. Like you were teaching him stuff that you had also freshly learned. Exactly. So like the part of it is I tell people like, if you can't teach it, you don't know it. So it was also like the teaching part was your learning experience. Exactly. As well. That's good. So That's great. like a cool thing is I became like the resource in that building, which ended up meaning that a lot of people were calling me to do things that didn't require me to be in the building. In fact, a lot of opportunities aren't always in the studio. Sometimes they're at the house of the artist. Sometimes they're at an event space. Sometimes it's like, hey, um, do you know how to do live sound? It's like, yeah, it's like, listen, we're doing a couple shows. Like, we need a front of house engineer. Can you do it? It's like, yeah, sure, I can do that. So I started realizing that there was more opportunities than the studio alone could provide. But the relationships I built at that studio were what was funneling that. So at a certain point, I was only at my studio once a week at most, you know. And at that point, it's like, why am I paying? At the time, it was, we're talking about 2011, and mm -hmm. I was paying roughly 2000 a month with my team for that studio. <whistles> yeah. And the studio was maybe a little bit bigger than our studio B. Um, sure. But it was like acoustically bad and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't up to like what my personal standards had grown into. Um, and at that point it was like, okay, I need to get out because all these opportunities are coming up outside of this. And I kind of need to be able to take them without the overhead holding me back on progression. So the next pivot point for me, pivot point two was leaving the studio because there was opportunities outside of it. And the overhead now was a factor that I needed to start considering yeah. better. That's interesting. I, yeah, for in, to put it into perspective in Utah, when I started my first studio, in Provo, Utah, just down the street from BYU. What a what a funny thing, man. Um, yeah, my I had an entire building to myself with two rooms larger than our current A room, like just not yeah. not including the the, the track, the, yeah. not including the the live room, just the the control room. Yeah, um, I had two rooms that were bigger than our Studio A control room, 
And I had an upstairs room, which is about as big as our B room. <laughs> With yeah. lower ceilings, but about as big. And as how much was it a month again? At first, at first, when we first started, after the $20,000 that we paid to get him out of the lease, mm-hmm. um, it was six fifty dollars a month plus utilities and insurance. So it's <sighs> like after, so much. after utilities and insurance and after utilities and insurance and um, alarm systems and cameras and things like that. It ended up being, it ended up being about at first it was 900 bucks a month. And then after a couple of years, she raised it to seven fifty. So then it became about a thousand to $1,100 per month of everything, including again, insurance uh, yeah. and utilities and all that jazz. Um, so yeah. But at the same time, remember like the price of that reflects the amount of work there was available. In, like in yeah. LA, the it's work not, is you abundance. don't have to be super, as long as you have a space, you can, you can not easily, but you can make two to $5,000 a month. Yeah. You know, fairly, to be honest, you know how many times, uh, like I'll talk to people who see the studio and they're like, you know, if you just made a cheaper room and made people allowed to smoke in it and just charge like 200 bucks a day, it'd be booked constantly. I'm like, yeah, but those are the specific clients I'm yeah, low key yeah, trying to the, avoid. Yeah. But the yeah. funny thing is like, there is an abundance of work available in LA. Yeah. Like you could be the cheapest option and you'd still find work. It's crazy. Um, it, that's definitely a thing. So I started studio. This is when I pivot, pivoted. Um, I met at this time. I was still with my band mm-hmm. and I was running the studio at the same time, working nonstop, going to school full time, working nonstop. My wife was working. This is before we had our first kid. My first, my second pivot actually was out of music. So I continued to do music, mm-hmm. but um, I did a live show with my band. Again, we were notorious enough to win Battle of Bands, get sent to California. Mm-hmm. We got booked to do a live festival type, not festival, but it was a 4th of July type event where we played to a live audience of about 5,000 people or something, five to 7,000 people. Yeah. And during that time, someone in that crowd, I think it was one of the event managers or someone that helped with the event, loved us so much, especially compared to every other band. That for some reason... And, I'm, and I have a feeling that it might have been because we were both Asian. Like, that could have been a part of it. But for <laughs> yeah. some reason, he saw me. He he talked to me. He learned about me. He noticed that I was an entrepreneur. And I didn't quite identify as an entrepreneur at the point. Mm-hmm. I was just, uh, just uh, a producer that owned a studio. Yeah. I wasn't a studio owner. You know, um, I wasn't a business guy. I was. Um, and at that point... We started talking, and then after like a month of a couple months of being friends, he invited me to work on his startup. We're gonna take a quick break to let you know that this episode has been brought to you by Tegler Audio, based out of Berlin. Tegler makes fantastic analog pieces of equipment, everything from compressors, both tube, VCA as well, from reverbs to recording channel strips to tube summing mixers, and to my favorite piece that I personally own and have and use is the Schwarcraft machine, which is digitally controlled compression, 11 different types of compressor. I mean, this thing is built to the brim with tubes and transformers it's fantastic they have digitally controlled analog gear which i'm a huge huge fan of they've got two different pieces of that they've got 500 series gear so whether you're a tracking engineer a mixing engineer or a mastering engineer you need to check out this high quality company tegler and guess what their prices they're not they're not crazy they're mid-range prices for high-end equipment. They're like a fantastic company. We love them so much. And if you want 10% off any of their gear, you can go to their website directly or from their shop directly, or I'll link it in mixingmusicpodcast.com slash Tegler, T-E-G-E-L-E-R, and use the code MMPOD to get 10% off your next order. Now back to the show. Nice. And as someone that was young, 
Um, I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. I had, it's not that I didn't have time, but I was just willing to live off of ramen and get no sleep. Yeah. Right? 22, 23. And for a period of about three to four years, me and him, we started about four companies. Mm-hmm. And outside of him, I started another two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, it wasn't, I didn't pivot into like stopping music to build companies, but I will say that I, I did too. I, this was, I would consider this a pivot because I was doing the studio full time. And I was also putting part-time hours into helping startups. And yeah. that's when emotionally I had a huge pivot and I started to identify and take on the identity as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, I started having entrepreneur mentors who didn't do music, but they were very wealthy people that started their own businesses. I started to become around people that built like new money wealth, yeah. like people that didn't get past money, but built it themselves. And and I learned what it took and the type of personality, the type of self-discipline to, um, in order to become more wealthy. I mm. learned about blue oceans versus red oceans. It's kind of like basic stuff, the importance of doing taxes, right. And hiring people. Like I even learned about like what it costs to start benefits for your employees, you know, and one of, so, and out of all these companies, only three stick stuck around. One of them is my marketing company, Launchpod Media, which I mm-hmm. talk about, which is a podcast marketing firm that's still sticking around. We have like 12 employees. I'm still part of our quarterly board meetings. Um, we do calls more often with the CEO often. And, um, I have my personal mixing thing, mixing music podcast, mixing mm-hmm. music, which includes the podcast, um, DK mixes, my personal mixing work, the podcasts and things of that nature, affiliates and that sort of nature. And the third thing, which is the studio in the mixed recording studios. So I have to do three sets of taxes every single year before Mm -hmm. I can do my personal one with everything conglomerated there. But um, anyway, that was, that was my second major pivot because I kind of, again, I started to identify. And to this day, I think that's part of the reason why, why I'm doing okay now isn't because I was so good at engineering. I think that was something that happened later, Yeah, but it was because I was so confident and I really, from a ground level, took seriously the importance of marketing, running a business, mm-hmm. advertising your business, finding clientele, project management, efficiency, yeah. systems, automation, these things that put me above and beyond anybody else that had three times the amount of experience I did because I actually fucking responded to emails. Yeah. You know, um, and that was my next major pivot. Gotcha. Honestly, that kind of ties in for mine too. Cause, um, so part of the private engineer life, like you have to learn these things. Right. And at first it's like, it's small, it's simple. You're kind of just getting by, you're probably still working like a nine to five to help pay for things, which I was like the whole time that I had my studio, I worked at guitar center, Sam Ash and at Westlake pro, you know, I've worked three different retail jobs that were all related to music. But then, uh, when I got into the, to the first pivot, which was going into like being a private engineer, just doing things, uh, completely freelance and there's no specific one client mm-hmm. or one location. Um, the next pivot was really kind of like, by the way, when did you stop doing any sort of retail work? Was it like partway through? Because you said you helped uh, start the studio when you were 21. Like what age I was age 26 were you... when I had my last uh, Your W2, last day. I think. W4, whatever it is you fill oh, okay, out. Okay, really? Yeah. So you were able to, you had a reliable, consistent form of income alongside your building, like entrepreneurship. Yeah. So like I had... Uh, I had to still rely on a nine to five to help me cover most of my bills. And then my work in music would cover like um, new gear purchases, marketing yeah, yeah, yeah. and trying some new things. Because I, um, I remember 
the month that I left my last job that I had, which funny enough uh, was the the recording connection. Um, I actually wrote the live sound curriculum with them with one of my coworkers. Um, and then shortly after I ended up leaving the company. But um, at that time I was combining what I made from recording and doing like live sound. And from that, and I was averaging like at the time, like roughly like four grand a month only for it to drop to 1800 a month. Cause 18 is really what I was making for music. Um, so the second pivot that's came still a lot. from like, it's like that's still, still a, a lot, especially for yeah. someone that's like new. I mean, yeah. I mean, think about someone that's 26, 27, um, not in LA. Yeah. And at Making the time, $1, minimum $1, wage was like 10 bucks insane. an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Minimum wage at the time was like 10 bucks an hour. That's and I was lot, averaging yeah. like 20 an hour. Um, but, um, the, the second pivot was really just kind of like finding what it meant to be a private engineer and how to scale upward. So one thing was like, I love recording and I love doing that. And I'd rather do this all the time. So I'm recording, mixing, mastering for all my clients from home or from wherever we're booked at. Right. Um, but that was just like one tier of work that I was able to offer, if that makes sense. Like uh, that's when I started realizing some of these clients are asking me, hey, can you help me set up my studio? Can you help me do these shows? And I started like really finding other opportunities. So uh, the next pivot was like starting to branch out more than just the basic offerings. Like you have your burger shakes and fries and that's fine. But um, at a certain point, if you ever want to expand that menu, you probably have more opportunity to attract new clients and different so types. Then you- went into budgets. at that point you went into what we talked about the last episode which was um the say yes to everything yeah but um it was kind of funny because like i said i like a trial by fire education uh, like just throw me in and i bet you i'll figure it out and by the end of the session we're fine um but um that's when I took on like uh, the Nick Cannon studio build out stuff. That's when I was doing Chris Brown studio build out. That's when I was doing Trey Song studio build out. And that's when I started working with like contractors as like the head of like their audio division and being the one in charge of installing consoles, installing patch bays, installing the systems and planning them out in advance. And then, you know, making sure all the software and computers were integrated right and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like 25, 26 at the time, you know, building out these A-list artists like studio and you've actually worked out of one of them. Um, I wasn't the contractor on that one, but I integrated like the studio. And so when there was issues, like the first person to call definitely was me at the time, but it was one of those like, okay, this isn't working. This isn't working. Okay, cool. I know it's set up. We're just going to find the solution. We're going to do this. Um, and as long as we do this, we're fine. And, you know, I became the guy that a lot of people trusted to be like their go-to guy. So the second pivot that I had was really um, not second. I guess this would be what, third pivot? Um, really just kind of becoming uh, multifaceted instead of just being a one lane kind of engineer. Like everybody records, everybody mixes, everybody masters. And when you're starting out, that's fine. And if that's the only thing you want to do, then dive deeper into that. But on my end, I don't know what made me much more fascinated in the idea of like setting them up and actually building these spaces and learning more about getting into it. So I started like starting a mid-site sound, which offered live sound integration and uh, recording services. And that was like when I finally, uh, I guess you could say built mid-site sound. Mid-site sound didn't exist until like I was 26. 
and now six years later, like Midside Sound is like still what Midside I, Sound the company, not yeah. the, not the technique, not the, the technique. Company. No, no, Midside Sound the company. Um, and to this day, it still offers all the same things. Like I'm still taking studio builds and all that kind of stuff. And arguably speaking, sometimes I can take a break from recording, mixing, and mastering, and just focus on that for a bit. Um, and that will pay the bills. And then I come back to music and all that kind of stuff. So part of it was like diversifying the portfolio more than what it was. That would be like my third pivot. Like building, like you said, building businesses that end up like succeeding and doing well. But also like kind of what we talked about on the last episode, finding out what you don't want to do and what doesn't interest you, what does interest you and kind of focusing more on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, Yeah. I remember, do you still use Midside Sound as an LLC? Okay. Oh, actually, it's all sole proprietorship, funny enough. Okay. Mine's, yeah, my main business is DK Mixes LLC. Um, But okay, back to the time where I'm starting businesses. I'm now involved with many other companies. Um, Yeah, we actually, one of the times when I was, started working on other companies, I remember this was like the most exciting, but also the most depressing thing ever. When I was about 24, one of the companies that I started, um, we, it was a marketing firm for apartments and listings. It was specifically huh. our main client was uh, a website. I think it's okay to say their name. It's a website called Rent Rentler or like, I think that's what it was. Rentler who are hmm. based out of Utah. They do apartment re- listings, but they also have like uh, landlord tools too, like collecting rent and pay, payment platforms nice. or por- portals, right? Um, what we did, and this was something so specific. This was a genius idea, but it just, it, it burned us out. You know, all of those Facebook groups like Los Angeles Housing, yeah. Minneapolis Housing, USC Housing. Yeah. I own all of them. <laughs> if you go to most of those, you'll see my name in the moderator list. That's actually kind of my hilarious. Facebook. Yeah. It blows up with so many just random cities and states across the entire U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so fucking annoying, actually. I hate Facebook because that ruined it for me because I don't have... I. Like you don't my have privacy anymore? Just, so I turned off all the notifications, but they keep reminding me that I own like f- so many of these groups. I don't know all of them and there's new ones too. And we went, went as far as to paying to acquire these groups. And yeah. we actually, my buddy and I, his name is Lee, he actually coded a scraper tool. So what it would do is that it, with the listing, it the tool, the coding would actually scrape the details from the listing, the pricing, the room, what mm-hmm. amenities and everything that was written down on a Facebook post going through what Facebook required to to post that listing. Yeah. And it would scrape that. It would automatically create a new profile for Rentler and yeah. it would make that listing on Rentler automatically and the code did it all automatically. So it would, it would like, it completely just demolished the Rentler's like uh, Google Analytics, like the paper yeah. clicks, like the PPC. Um, it just went down. Like we were killing, killing all of their marketing. Yeah. In fact, we were killing it so much that they were going to sp- pay $1.6 million to me and Lee yeah. for, for what for us was eight months of work, eight to 10 months yeah. of work. We were at the table signing that offer. Me and Lee were going to split $800,000 each yeah. for about eight to 10 months of work. I'm 24. He might be 26. We're yeah. going to do this together. And VP comes in while he has the pen in his hand about to sign this paper. The CEO has the pen in his hand about yeah. to sign this paper. VP comes in, whispers something in the CEO's ear. CEO walks out, comes back in two minutes later and says, hey guys, we're actually going to have to hold off on this. And, and the project got shelved. God I lost $800,000. Not yeah. like actually lost because I yeah, didn't yeah. go into debt. But I remember losing 
a potential. Yeah. I was like getting greedy and like my mouth was drooling. I was like, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be rich. Like I'm, this is gonna set me up. I'm, gonna, I can invest in other things. And I was actually, if that did get signed, I probably would have. No, I don't think I would have left music. Um, but you probably would have gone more privatized than music. No, yeah, I was gonna say that actually probably wouldn't have been good for my career because we've all we've both seen people that like made money from doing something else and they like buy their way. They have all the nice gear, but they don't have the the skill to to back it up. You know, oh so that's a man, whole do we know thing. those kind of people? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so like, there's this thing where you don't charge enough, but you charge. It's like it's it's this weird thing that actually isn't that helpful it's actually good to build your gear list and to build your amenities and to build your skill and slowly that's like a good thing actually yeah um anyway so that was one experience that has nothing to do with the pivot anyway so i kind of while i was doing my cold house studio which is the studio that's still running in utah Mm -hmm. is going all this time i'm spending 40 to no easily 60 to 80 hours per week doing this while going yeah. to school full time and doing about 20 hours 10 to 20 hours per week building these other businesses mm-hmm. okay uh i pivoted from those businesses i did a lot of pivots between businesses cuz one business got shelved another business started we actually had one called home slice it was actually going to be um slice of pizza home, at home. it was going to be like home equity sharing so you can sell home equity as stock so you can yeah. sell up to 45% of your home equity so you keep majority so it wouldn't be timeshares but people can invest in your real estate and if you yeah. sold your house they would take a portion of that money but it didn't work there's a lot of legal obligations there's a few other companies that were trying to do it it was way too many loopholes and it would have cost way too much money in lawyers to actually figure out yeah fantastic idea this is I didn't know if you knew this part of me anyway so I did this thing it got shelved then I was like me and Lee we were kind of like done like it's like ah dude we kind of both burned out I was going to focus more on Cold House Studio this is my next pivot is um, I then went to mix with the masters I decided Mm -hmm. I'm going to take because I'm still doing music for school for music I decided I got an internship for mix with the masters and I went to I got accepted to Leslie Brathwaite's week-long seminar in the south of France for mix with the masters I got school to accept it as intern credit yeah and so they paid for the trip other than the flight so I paid for the Mm -hmm. flight they paid for the 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 fees for the seminar though and um I went out for a week had the craziest and again I've had I've had many episodes where I talk about my specific experience with Mix with the Masters, Mm -hmm. but at that moment, I learned two things. One, I'm way better at music in all of those hours that I've been dealing with clients and working, Mm -hmm. trying to build a career with Cold House, um, paid off way more than I thought. Mm -hmm. And and this is crazy because I was super insecure because I was good for Utah, but I didn't realize that meant I was good globally. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like I was good objectively. And it was the first time that like Leslie gave me the permission to like believe that I was good. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like my cares and my insecurities just vanished because of Leslie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also decided that I like mixing more. Hence, I went with the Mixing with Masters. I kind of had that feeling, yeah. but I was still offering everything else. As soon as I got back from Mix with the Masters, I stopped recording completely. And yeah. every time someone asked me to record, I'd be like, why don't you record from home? I'll help you buy a mic. I'll help you set it up because it was, it was more fun. And I made more money per hour if I just mixed. Yeah. So like what I did is I completely... I lost a lot of money that year, but I pivoted to completely mixing, only mixing. And that was not that long ago, actually, in retrospect. It was only four or five years ago Mm -hmm. that I switched to completely mixing, nothing else. Um, And then at that time is when, well, it was before I left for France that Launchpod Media happened. So my buddy Johnny, who's the CEO, he's like, DK, we've seen your work. We've seen you doing well with the studio, which people kept seeing me running a studio as like, an authority of like, this guy knows what he's doing, I guess. Cause it's like a, such a stupid business with so low 
margins yeah. that like people are like, like if, oh, this, if this work. guy can make this got this thing work, he can make something that's yeah. actually profitable work. Um, so anyway, me, me and two other guys joined forces. We did Launchpod Media. Again, still going to this day. It's a podcast marketing firm. I got back from France when I decided to do this. All my insecurities are gone. I realized that I was good at what I do. I had confirmation from multi-Grammy winning Leslie Brathway, who basically just said I was I was good. Yeah. And then um and I was ready to just do mixing. And at the same time, this podcast company started. I was the only one out of the three owners of the company that didn't have a podcast. So I decided to start mixing music as an experiment mm-hmm. for the company. Like it was like I didn't like I didn't know anything about podcasts at the time. I didn't really listen to podcasts. I was just like the guy that knew audio. And I was like, okay, in order to kind of understand how these algorithms work, I can help and even help Launchpod prove their theories and do experiments to mm-hmm. see how we can force the algorithm to boost my show. Yeah. Hence why we were the number one. I was the number one new show in music, tech, and hobbies. That wasn't an accident. That was Launchpod yeah. Media Marketing. Um, why we have over 750,000 downloads to this point. This, it's in, by the way, we passed 750,000 downloads. Three quarter mil. Yeah. And, um, and then it was that time when I realized, okay, I'm not gonna, no longer going to be insecure. And I talk a lot more about the details of this. So I pivoted into podcasting mm-hmm. alongside pivoting into mixing, alongside pivoting into this LaunchPod Media. And LaunchPod Media to this day is, was the last, well, as of this point, was the last non-music company I ever invested into. Yeah. And, and I'll go into my last pivot in a minute here. Cool. But do you have any other pivots that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, opening in the mix studios. Oh yeah, that's- yeah. So for me, this one was more significant uh, for me, and it, it it will tie into the last pivot. But um, this pivot was significant for a few reasons. Um, at no point have I mentioned in any of the pivots like my reliance on the team. A lot of it was like talking about myself and myself doing things because in my head it wasn't like first or what is it first character syndrome? What is it main character syndrome? It what? Wasn't, Like when you think like you're the only person that matters in your story kind of thing. Oh, being a narcissist? Yeah, being a dick. Yeah. Megalomaniac? Yeah. Whatever that is. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with the definition of it, but it sounds cool. At the same time, sounds bad. Define megalomaniac. Megalomaniac means a person who is obsessed with their own power. Do you want to hear the remaining one? Okay, I'm, I definitely wasn't that. Someone who's just fully, totally self-obsessed with yourself. But themselves. on my end, it was one of those where, like, I always kind of learned, like, you can't lead a horse to water. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink, right? And it proved very true many times when I tried helping people. Kind of like how we talked about in the previous episode where, like, you know, a lot of people are very... um uh, I guess inspired and eager, but not a lot of them have follow through. And uh, to this day, it's a challenge that I have to like find people who actually have like a real committed follow through. Um, it's, it's, that is something that is not in abundance. So when you find people like that, you hold on to Yeah. Them. We talked about that in the last episode too. There's everybody says that they want to do music or they want to make a living yeah. for music or they're really passionate or, about it. Or but, anything. Yeah. But you put yeah. them in a group project, only one person does all the work. Yeah. So I always found myself as like, the person that was like, even when I played in bands, when it came to like promoting shows, putting them on, getting paperwork from the city, I was always kind of left alone with the work. But because of that, I've always kind of like just then subscribed to the idea. Like if I don't do it myself, it's probably done wrong or half-assed or something, you know? So I just 
was always okay doing everything myself and putting myself through that stress. So when we started in the mix, it's not that like, I never saw you as like a helpful resource or anything, but I was ready to be like, okay, I'll set up the studios. I'll do all this stuff and I'll just throw as much as I can. I don't have to ask for permission. I don't have to ask if you can help because either way it's going to get done and we're going to do well and we're going to do fine. But there was a point where I had to learn to rely on my team. This is really interesting. That was my challenge. This is really interesting because, um, yeah, okay, so... 29, 2020, January mm-hmm. 2020, we met for the first time. Yeah. We opened the studio August, August 2020. 2020. That was a f- August 1st was the first official so January date. to August. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. crazy. Think about it. We've been in business together three years. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting because it's funny that now that I hear you say that, mm-hmm. because in my mind, I thought I was going to be the one that was going to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in reality, like, because you had a unique experience in helping run a studio. Yeah. You know, um, you were not just the engineer, but you helped run a studio, which is unique in LA. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty normal for, for anywhere people outside to of LA. Like work in a studio. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. usually the engineer, the head engineer is the also the owner of the studio. That's pretty mm-hmm. common anywhere else. But in LA, that's a unique experience. Because yeah. the, it's also not just basic how to have clients. Like what I did, owning a studio and being the head engineer, it was just like I'm dealing with my clients and I just had a yeah. set location to do it. It was more of like an office where managing a studio is like customer service, booking times, dealing with clients. There's like, yeah. and it's a much higher demand thing. So it's like there's a lot more um, clients to sift through, right? Exactly. And even if you're not doing the session yourself, right, there's a lot more that goes outside of it. Yeah. You had that f- upfront day to day customer facing experience mm-hmm. and then from my personal experience which was unique is i knew how to build websites how to market the company how to which put is it, something the, i had no clue yeah on. how to do taxes how to do the finances how to you know overhead and paying stuff 1099s yeah. all that stuff um and then together and we never actually verbalized it like what we should to be honest this is a mistake that we made what we should have done is sat down and put it on paper here's what your role Lou is yeah. here's what my role is but I think that we both didn't know how we were going to fit with each other and yeah for some it was reason, still never, very new for each other yeah. like we I think we signed our paperwork for the LLC while we already had the studio yeah and so like I think now in retrospect um, I think we're really lucky yeah. because we both naturally pivoted into you are the day-to-day guy. Yeah. I am the back-end guy. Yeah. And um, and I think that our work is equal, but yours is just different. Exactly. And that's where like I kind of like think about it when I'm That was like, so lucky though. It's yeah. so lucky that it worked out that way. That's why the pivot was so important to me because um, it's not bad if you do a lot of things on your own. And if you have the ability to, then why not if you're, if you're trying to be cost effective, right? But the, the issue was never really that on my end. It's just I never really met a lot of people that had the same push and like want to like Are you complimenting focus. me right now? Is that what's happening? You are getting a compliment. Holy yes. shit. But, like put it this way. Like, man to man, dude, that never happens. Good. As, as, <laughs> men good. don't compliment men, dude. No. <laughs> but like Jeez. it, it kind of comes down to the idea of like, that's why I always tell people like, if you find somebody good that you can trust, keep them around. Like you may not always agree on everything and that's actually better because you shouldn't agree on everything. At that point, it's a waste of time. You're just looking in the mirror. Yeah. Um, but um, when we opened the studio, like I remember spending 24 hours in the studio before our first session, setting up all of studio a, like getting it clean, prepped, verifying everything worked and then sleeping on the carpet floor and then opening the door for the client as soon as I woke up. And that client was Kylan Turner. Um, oh, he was, yeah. he was a uh, studio client number one. And in fact, so much so that, um, the studio technically wasn't perfectly complete at the moment. And he knew that and he was still okay with it. <laughs> um, and it was before August 1st, in fact. 
you know, because we got oh, early we access like to the five studio. Day grace period, that one week grace period to yep. set up. Yep. So it was one of those like I've always been in the mindset of like I work really hard and I'm okay with hard work as long as things are getting done. I'm okay with it. But then as we got busier, we got a lot of bookings and like we were doing really well, especially like we're at the height of the pandemic. Every most studios are shut down. So there's a lot of foot traffic going on. Um, And I remember there was uh, one time where I spent two complete days at the studio and a half. So almost three complete uh, days went by without me going home. And Danny and Henry told me to go home and that they would watch the studio. And I just felt guilty. I remember doing that at Cold House. Like I would sleep at the studio. Yeah. Again, I, I feel, I, in, in retrospect, whenever I slept at the studio, that means my wife went to bed by herself. Yeah. So and like see, I didn't, I wish I thought about that more, but now. See, yeah. and that's where like the conversation from the previous episode <laughs> ties into this pivot, which was, you know. Before, all my business relied on my shoulders because I didn't have a ton of assistants. I only had maybe like one assistant in like the seven years before that, right? Um, But because of that, I was very on purpose self-reliant because I I only ever needed myself to get something done. And so having a team and relying on the team was something that I had to learn way late in the game, way late in the game. So... I remember them telling me to go home, go be with Anna, go watch a movie, go do something and just feeling guilty that I was leaving my business versus leaving my home without me. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so part of the biggest pivot is realizing that as much of a role as you may play in your business or as you may think you do, it's not big enough for them to not be able to work without you for a day or two. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I feel like we did a good job like automating everything. I remember in Cold House, there was one point, I don't remember, I don't think it was anything specifically I did. I didn't even seek it out, mm-hmm. but I remember, I guess the studio in itself had built enough of a local notoriety where a local university, accredited university, not a community college, mm-hmm. um, wanted to send interns my way. I think yeah. it was because one of my clients was a student at that university and he had asked me if I can get internship credits. So I became one of their like providers of credits and they accepted me because even though I was a student at the time, I became yeah. an internship credit provider as a student to a competing university. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when the first time I took on like interns and like mm-hmm. had to think about like, okay, how do I teach these people and had to look into like labor laws and things like yeah. that. Um, so I remember, and then, Combined with the entrepreneurship, the businesses that I'd been developing, which is like Launchpod Media was the first time that it was beyond just me and the owners. Like mm-hmm. we actually started hiring people, hiring out tasks that we had to do on a daily basis. So like yeah. we prioritized what was the most important things that we had to do, what was the least important things, how do we hire out those least important things because we're making enough income to pr- provide full-time cr- jobs. Um, so like we slowly, and, and that started with, Oh, I remember the most tedious thing ever, mm-hmm. writing a fuck ton of manuals. The name, <laughs> the positions, the name of the positions, how to do those positions, expectations, KPIs, yeah. like everything. So every position that we had had a name and had a specific set of priorities mm-hmm. and how to do those things, what the KPIs are, what the expected KPIs were and like their mm-hmm. expected performance rates are. We had to build um, manuals and and automations for uh, systems for teaching them because most people that were doing podcast podcast marketing was so new that most people that we hired had never been part of a podcast agency yeah you know um and so it's like we had to we hired like 
one dude was working for Harley Davidson and Starbucks, representing them in an ad agency, yeah. just a generic ad agency. And then we took him and he became the project manager for Launchpad Media. Mm-hmm. He actually, the sad story about him. But anyway, um, he, he did that. And so we had to train him. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we had to pay a headhunter. Paying a headhunter is no joke. I think hmm. we paid like fifty to seventy thousand dollars just to find this dude, and then yeah. on top of that, we had to commit to paying him ninety thousand dollars a year. This is no God joke. Damn. So, so remember, yeah. I'm about twenty six. My CEO is about twenty seven, twenty eight. Um, we're all of us are under thirty, mm-hmm. and we have now hundreds of thousands of dollars of headroom. Yeah. That we had to do every single year. So even now, like I say that I'm broke, but that's because I have so much headroom for so much different things. Yeah. But anyway, um. So, sorry, the reason I brought that up is because of that unique skill set that I had with mm-hmm. your unique skill set. Because, yeah, I know how to run a studio, but you have a lot more specific stuff. Specific. Yeah. I didn't know how to deal with clients that I wasn't engineering from and at that scale. Yeah. So that was unique to that. And then what we did now is now we've automated systems. We, I helped create the, um, the internship program, and now none of us have to be there. Yeah. I've, neither of us have to be there and it kind of runs in itself and it's good for them because they get to learn. They get to work in a space that is really professional. Um, we, we go out of our way. I think we have the best internship program of all of Southern California here. No, yeah. no doubt. I don't know of a single other state that offers close. like one-on-one dedicated lessons on a weekly basis. And, and that's partially because we know that in order to keep interns or in volunteers sometimes that the leverage that we have is the quality of education. So we yeah. go out of our way to do provide as much opportunity and education as we can for our interns. Ask any of our interns. I'm sure we'll interview one of them later for another episode. Yeah. Um, but it's fantastic. It's, it's like, I'm really proud of our program. And, and that's worked out really well. So you said one last pivot for you. Yeah. Um, setting up strong boundaries. Uh, this is kind of not a career pivot. It's a mentality pivot. Mm. Because... Um, It's kind of like we talked about earlier, like early in your career, it's definitely a good idea to say yes to everything. But at the same time, you set yourself up for a very dangerous uh, output if you don't learn to calibrate. And that calibration being that as soon as something starts to go sour, though you did agree to it in the past, you now need to know how to set up your boundaries or communicate certain issues and prevent this from happening again, which means uh, like a good example is uh, the interview with Jeff Jackson, where every time he got burned, he added it to his contract. And because yeah, yeah. of that, he could no longer get burned in that situation. That's okay. You're, you're going to get burned over time. But um, it's important. Up- we don't want to deny you the opportunity of getting burned. Yeah. Get burned. There's something about like, you know what? Go get burned. There's right something now. about, there's something interesting about teaching you how not to get burned because you don't you wanna, have to get burned to understand why. Yeah. You know, like, like if, to be honest, if you've never changed the oil of a car, but you've read a book on it, I still don't trust you to change the oil of my car. I don't want you anywhere near it. So I'd rather you get your hands dirty and fuck it up a couple times. So you don't fuck it up when you do mine. Yeah. Yeah. So the point of like the intern programs is like literally come make mistakes. It's okay. Now don't do repeat those mistakes over and over again, but make the mistakes so that you can understand what the issue was the idea of safe spaces is like really popular in the last decade yeah we believe we, i don't get like safe space if we're a safe space for anything we're we're a safe space for making mistakes yeah i mean there's some lines that you can't cross yeah <laughs> but we are very we're significantly more okay with mistakes in fact we encourage them accelerate your mistake making yeah um and we will do our, as long as you can clean if you spill the milk as long as you clean up after yourself 
and I'd rather hire someone or I'd rather keep an employee who fucked up really bad because I know that they're never going to make that mistake anymore yeah. ever again. They're going to be so embarrassed that's like they're never going to let that happen again yep. instead of hiring somebody new to replace them after they make a mistake. Yeah. But like the big point on this one is like once you start learning what your boundaries are or what you're willing to deal with you you honestly live a much happier life and like part of that was like being able to go home something that mm-hmm. like after in the mix became much more of a reality than it did before reason being is uh, once again i was very reliant on myself saying yes to a lot of things i was the head engineer for like two different rental companies i was the head engineer for one venue then got transitioned i transitioned to another venue that was paying me double and this and that and then i had to like get an assistant for that one which henry is now my assistant for that venue and like i've got Nowadays, like I run my studio design company, which is doing well and it benefits. And like now I'm quoting more than I used to by a long shot. Um, I have I do mainly mastering and mixing as a secondary now. Uh, mastering still primary, mixing secondary. And the funny thing is, like I've actually said no to more projects this year than I have any other year. Not because like I have too much work, but because my reliance on my team doesn't mean that I have to like say yes to everything for the studio to survive. Like Mm -hmm. my, now I'm funneling clients to the team members and the different engineers we're training and hoping that they can build good relationships, but only because we've instilled the right morals and expectations in them. So because of that, I don't have to be every client's engineer. Yeah. It's okay to share the wealth at this point and that can really spread the pie apart. Yeah. But, um, had I not known to like start setting up boundaries, like I go home at a certain time. So if a client wants to work at this time, I'm just not the right guy for it. I want to take Sundays off. So if they need it on Sundays, I'm sorry, I'm just not available. That's my time for me and my wife. You cannot get in the way of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like setting up these boundaries is something I didn't have before, which is what led to like me and Anna almost breaking up twice, literally because of my f- level of focus and dedication to my career versus just enjoying my life. Yeah. Yeah, and since setting up these boundaries, I haven't burnt out again on music. Um, I'm taking on a bunch of different work and actually doing it within a realm that I'm comfortable with taking it on, yeah. you know. And so Damn. we'll see what the next pivot is. Um, but for me, it really just came down to, like, now that I can rely on my team, now that I actually have all the experience from the past and know what I'm comfortable with, what I'm not comfortable with, what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy, setting up these boundaries really just made it to where I can actually enjoy myself more versus pushing myself into stress. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. That's in setting up boundaries, as you know, is super important. And we talk about that all the yeah. time. A late um, lesson on my end. I'm going to do my last two real quick. Sure. I'm going to include in the mixed studios. We did that. I, I think in the mixed studios is part of it. Um, owning a studio that's I was already owning a studio Mm -hmm. but I think the pivot was moving to LA during Mix with the Masters Leslie I said how can I get better at mixing because he had no feedback on my mix and that's a story that we could talk about another time or there's previous episodes where I talk about my Leslie experience Um, and I said okay at an advanced level how can I keep improving my mix like there's some level that I can reach beyond this I'm not I'm not old enough to plateau yet yeah you know and um he he directly said to me during Mix with the Masters, like, sometimes the thing that's keeping you, holding you back from leveling up your career is not the work itself. It's where you live. Yeah. Basically, verba- he basically told me, move. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, I granted, I dropped out of school because of LaunchPod Media, like the mm-hmm. CEO 
asked me to do full-time hours. So I was, again, I was doing studio full-time, trying to do Launchpad Media full-time, and they required more hours out of me mm-hmm. to do more work. And I was going to school full-time. So I had two full-time startups and yeah. school full-time. So by the way, if you go to school full-time and you're like, I don't have enough time to do music, fuck you. Yeah, you definitely do have enough I time. I worked a full-time job, went to school full-time, and I owned a studio at the same time. You spit on my ethic. <laughs> if you think that you are so entitled that you're unable to do something with your full-time, going, fuck you. I was doing theory core, which is some bullshit. Like yeah. two hours of homework every single night on top of the classes that I had to go to. Yeah, while maintaining two jo- uh, job, not even jobs, companies that I owned. This is um, this is sadly why I have like high expectations from the people that work with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you if you are one of those motherfuckers complaining that you don't have enough time, fuck you, you piece of shit. All right. If, if you're on Call of Duty <laughs> two hours a night, then yeah, I don't need to hear what the excuse is. No, I'm teasing. I'm I'm not. I don't think that I'm normal in the sense that I don't think it's healthy, nor was it good for me to spend that much time. Um, I'm just tired of people being like complaining about. It. Don't complain about it. Like you, you obviously have the decision to destroy your health in exchange for working and building two companies at the same time. <laughs> it's like what I tell the interns. Like it. Like if you come to the studio and everything's taken off on the list, you, you're more than welcome to play video games for all I care. But I'm just saying. Um, I see what you're doing. If you're if you're just on the couch playing video games all day versus like using the resources in front of you to become bigger than you currently are, then yeah, that's that's what we take notice of. Yeah, no, no. If you love TV shows and if you love video games, that's cool. Yeah. And I encourage you to chase what you love. Yeah. But you can't do that and at the same time complain that you can't do this full time. Yeah. It's too entitled to do that. Like, I love video games and I've now come to the point where I can spend a lot of time playing video games with my kids, you know, and I, I, my wife has said to me, I used to have like this, I I had a troubled childhood where it's like insanely insecure and like, I just judged other people, including myself when I wasn't working hard enough and I never thought I was enough, which like kind of led to this over workaholic kind of thing. Um, and my wife one day is like, dude, if you like video games, like pursuing things that you like just for the enjoyment of it is like, okay. Yeah. And I was like the first I was like 26 and I was like, oh, shit, because I just whenever I play video games, I heard my dad's like, you're wasting your time, you fucking yeah. idiot, you know, and, and and so it's OK. But the point is, you can't complain at the same time. You yeah. can't complain. Um, so I didn't I hope if you hopefully you didn't take it personally when I said, fuck you. But uh, a little part of me does actually honestly think that don't if you're <laughs> complaining and playing video games all the time, like shut the fuck up. You, yeah. you shouldn't complain. Um, you're making me look bad. You're making you're you're spitting on me and Lou's personal legacies here okay um because at the same time if we put in all this work and we weren't as successful as we are that's that's fucking spitting on our other legacy okay anyway um not only that but if you're gonna ask for help rant Mm. yeah 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 rant 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 sorry rant over um but i pivoted to los angeles we moved to los angeles totally different game i i thought that having another studio, so I still have Cold House in Utah, but having another studio in LA, I thought it was going to be the same thing. It wasn't. Totally different. Uh, I found out that I didn't want to engineer, and I didn't really want to be working out of that studio. And I learned that much quicker than I thought I did. I very quickly, um, and by this time I had like left LaunchPod as an active employee. I hired myself out. We had hired myself out of the position. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they're like, yeah, you can do whatever you want in LA. Just be a part of these meetings that we do every, at least once a month or a quarter. And so I went out and I pursued music in LA and I'm out here. Um, now, as much as I, I only do the studio like once a week and with some with stuff here and there, but I'm not engineering out of the studio, as you know, I'm literally just a purebred owner. And this is my yeah. last pivot is when I went from like actively working in, in the mixed studios to now. And especially this year, 
Mm-hmm. I have made the most amount of money that I've ever made from just mixing um, ever in my entire life. And in fact, like, I think I've made, I think that I've made a lot, like, the most... Okay, I need to be careful, and I'm not going to say exact in anywhere near alluding to how much. But I will say that I've made the most amount of money in liquid cash, not mm-hmm. not private equity, yeah. uh, in liquid cash this year than I've ever made in my entire life. And nice. um, I'm like, and and here's the cool thing is that I've worked so damn hard is that I'm in a mentally healthy place enough where I feel like I deserved it in a good way. Like yeah. I've earned this shit, and I have no imposter syndrome for the first time ever. And I'm literally just I like. I remember in the memories of just losing my passion, I've gone back to what you said, which is just remembering how much I'm passionate about music, how much I love music. And I'm just now going back to doing this for fun yeah. within my boundaries. And, um, and I did this all before I turned 30. And that's the craziest thing too. And lastly, I'm going to flex this because this is like the only episode that, I, that I'll have the opportunity to talk about this. And it's like actually relevant to the topic. When I was 26, 27, and 28... Mm-hmm. Three three years in a row, I was because of the podcast, because of Launchpod Media, because of the, the other things going on. I was an official nominee for Forbes 30 Under 30. Three years in a row. Oh yeah, I won none of those years, but uh, I was an official nominee. Like they emailed me and said, "Hey, you're officially nominated. You're in the final rounds all three years, and never won." So it doesn't really mean anything. So it's not like it's like an unnecessary. It's not really a flex because it's like, hey, you're like not that good. You're like good enough, but like not that good. You didn't win anything. <laughs> you you know? got to like, the finish line, but didn't cross it. Yeah. yeah. But um, I'd like to think about that too. But in my, in your experience, to wrap it up, and I, and I, deja vu, I'm having a deja vu moment. But I want you to wrap up some of your overall thoughts of what you've learned here. And I'm going to do the same right now. For me, I've, to this day, things that have completely shifted and created my career to allow me to do what I love for a living mm-hmm. is one, I have a unique amount of experience building companies, aut- systems, automations, understanding expectations and self-discipline mm-hmm. and having a high amount of impulse control. Yeah. I learned that from entrepreneurship. Um, I've, another, the second unique thing is I learned on top of that is the impulse control, the, the, the level of boundaries, the boundaries that you said that you talked mm-hmm. about that we always constantly talk about. I learned early because of having a kid early, yeah. having kids early. Those two things are very unique to me that may not work for everybody, but I can guarantee all of my work comes, all of my, a lot of my success stems from those two things. Yes, mm-hmm. I had mentors. Yes, I had people. But even if Leslie gave me everything that I had, mm-hmm. you know, put me in the right spot, gave me an internship, if I didn't have the skills and the, the impulse control and the self-respect and the, the work standards that mm-hmm. I learned from entrepreneurship, I don't think that I would have been able to dif- differentiate myself enough to make a living from this gotcha. um, at this young of an age. <laughs> so um, I think those are the biggest things overall. I think that that's why I'm the, a super huge proponent of learning how to run a proper business, that mixing and engineering producing is a business. And you have to learn how to take care of business. And it's mostly just doing basics. It's mostly about learning how to put your, if you have a, a studio, putting your studio on Google listings, how to boost the Google student listings through SEO and through reviews, things mm-hmm. of that nature. How to build content and how to make effective content to convert audiences, the lead generation, things, basic stuff. Nothing, there's no secret to any of this stuff. 
Um, and that's why I emphasize it so much because for me, that's what made the difference. I don't, cons- I feel like I'm really fucking good at my craft, mm-hmm. but I don't think that being good is what made me full time. Yeah. I think it was my unique ability to be able to run a business. Yeah. Like on my end, it's, it's kind of funny to, to try to surmise like what all these pivots really did. I, I know what my habits are and I know how they've changed over time. And what's kind of funny is like, we we've talked about this in our differences where I'm I'm very like front facing to clients and that's kind of what I kind of would associate all my success to like um no matter whether it was running my own first studio and trying to figure that out like a lot of it really came down from like learning how to interact with people how to communicate how to actually be a little more effective with like the booking system and all that and just making sure that client expectations are being met understanding like different standards but a lot of that kind of like i said kind of started like i guess caving in on me a little bit with the busier i got because everything i was very self-reliant like if we had an a2 for an event i'd be like Oh, I got a second set of hands. That's cool. Instead of just moving with the notion of like, yeah, there's a lot of things that we can systemize and actually make a lot more efficient. Um, But because of this, what ended up happening is a lot of these pivot points, it kind of helped with like understanding like, okay, there's certain specialties that I'm good at, but not everything is meant for me to be done. And I started learning that. Loki, it's okay for you not to want to do a certain part of the job. If you have a good enough team that you can rely on and you can trust, then you can not necessarily blindly look away. But you can now start saying, you know what? I can focus on doing more. And part of this was like, you don't have to, like in your case, you're very focused on mixing and your business. That is a perfect scenario for somebody who wants to focus on the very specific thing that they want to do in my case i get really bored of doing the same thing over and over again sometimes so like having an ability to expand outside of my normal realm is actually really helpful for me in my own mental state i do Um, the same thing but with hobbies yeah i have new hobbies every other month yeah like the one thing collector of hobbies have you noticed that me and you never stay on the same thing uh throughout the years that we've known each other but we're just as passionate about whatever it is we newly focused on yeah every time and i start incorporating analogies for whatever my passion yeah (laughs) last year was a lot of marathon and running yeah type like uh or this earlier this year was a lot of marathon running did you ever see my analogy of like um the difference between like the quality of mastering engineers because I can reference one Pikachu from one generation versus <laughs> a go. complete reprint copy and be like, well, see, the ink is different. It's like, how can you tell these things? It's like, because I've been around long enough to be able to tell the difference. There you go. And, and yeah, the analogies are easier when it's front of mind. Right? Yeah. You're going to hear a lot more. James already called it out because I see James. Well, yeah. Obviously, we see James out all the time. Um, and uh, he called it out, but he's like, it's already started. You already did a surf analogy in an episode, <laughs> <laughs> a surfing analogy. Nice. Anyway. But um, yeah, like it, it really kind of comes down to like all these different pivots made it to where it's like, you know, I fell in love with one thing, realizing that there's opportunity in so many different things. I became the guy that's like, so what do you do? And it's kind of hard to say what I do sometimes. Um, just because it's like uh, the last big project I did was, uh, the Zeus network project. And recently like Blueface posted in his stories that I was at his house, quoting him like a six figure studio build out in his house, like, which is cool. But it's one of those things where it's like the guy that was working at guitar center 
is now doing like studio design build outs. He's mastering for rubbing for shoulders names. with big names. Yeah. And the funny thing is at no point uh, in my pivots, was it ever like, I'm going to be the best one thing. It was just like, my, my goal has always been to be a really good resource in our industry. That's true. We are great side-by-side comparison of like, I decided to do one thing. I niched really hard mm-hmm. and you are the jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um, and have made a living off of that. That's yeah. it's very unique, and I think it's cool. And for you, that's very satisfying. I think that's the most yeah. important point is that it's you like doing all the things. Yeah, which, like is, somebody, which is a good good thing to notice, to recognize, yeah. and to um, be okay with. Like I can have the same client call me and say, "Hey, I need you to master this record," and the next day be like, "Hey, uh, I'm thinking about buying a console. Can you help me plan out the patch bay?" Yeah, it's like, yeah, sure. I'd love to, you know, and the funny thing is like with my clients that work with me, they know that the work is always a one. So it's like, it's, uh, it's never in my head ever landed in the idea of like, I'm a jack of whatever trade I'm doing. It's like, no, there's, I have specialties, but I can definitely help you out with more than just what my specialty is. And, And more importantly, you, you have the temperament and the desire to want to do all these things. Oh yeah. For example, I don't want to do studio. Design. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not a fun thing. I literally just it's, want to mix. And I will yeah. say though, the funniest thing out of all this is for me personally, I mm-hmm. laugh about this. I talk about this all the time because it's so funny to me. Out of all the things that I've done, as much as I love scaling and building, building a scalable business. Yeah. It's so humorous to me. Laughable. Yeah. That the one thing that I've been the, become the most passionate about mm-hmm. that I want to build my career about is the least scalable thing I've ever done in my entire life. Music. I can only do <laughs> mixing music. I can only do one song at a time, servicing one client at a time. Yeah. It's the least, sca- I, can't, I can't really teach. I can have an assistant, but yeah. I still have to finish it. You know, yeah. like, I can't go on vacation. Like if I, it's, it's, that's the only thing is yeah. that there's a part of me that's like emotionally unsatisfied because. I can't go on vacation. You know, I can go on vacation, but I got to like. But you got to take some of it with you. <laughs> yeah, or whatever it is. I have to plan it out really ahead of time. Anyway, it's just funny to me. I, I need to, I'm eventually I'll figure it out. But um, it's just funny to me. Like, yeah. Anyway, um, that's it for this episode, honestly. Yeah. I think the, the big takeaway from this is what you should learn is that, again, we're big, big uh, fans of the importance of saying yes to everything. If you want oh, yeah. more clients, you have to say yes to everything. And if you don't, if you, I would never ever force a niche or yeah. a niche, right? Like never, if you, you might think that you want to do mixing right now, but you should still say yes to everything until you've done, like until you've put in about 10,000 hours overall. And then you're like, you know what? I fucking hate recording. I just want to do mixing. Yeah. Um, once you find yourself getting, I mean, trust your gut as well. Like once you find yourself getting frustrated or not enjoying specific parts of it, that's when you start to say no to those things. Yeah. Um, but don't force a niche. Yeah. Um, um, like if you really yeah. like something and you're passionate about it, definitely go after it. Like uh, my specific thing was engineering. It wasn't necessarily being the best recording engineer or being the re- best mixing engineer or being the best mastering engineer. And I'll be honest, just like our industry, it's all creative differences yeah. you know every mastering engineer has the same end goal yeah but we all go about it differently so to say that one is better than the other is kind of like this very like niche argument between people it's, it's even the niche group of people that are arguing this detail it's not the audience so at the end of the day um it becomes one of those things like as long as you have a good time and your client has a good time um the end results are exactly what they need to be 
versus like, you know, oh, it's good enough. You know, yeah. no, make sure you're still hitting your end goal. You should still have a, a goal quality output. But you got to really enjoy yourself. Like part That's of like a, a big part of my pivots ended up just being like, I need to learn to calibrate. Chase what you enjoy and make sure you enjoy what you chase. Um, This is, that's like, it's, I know it's such a simple platitude there, but the thing is, is that that goes so much deeper than people realize because Mm. at the end of the day, this is another topic that we've talked about. Way too many people have to sacrifice it all in order to do well in this industry to then in retrospect, look back and realize none of it was worth it and lose, completely lose their passion for music. Yeah. Um, Build this. I think that if you are going to be a workaholic and if you are going to chase after it, make sure that you continually work. Make sure you complete, com- consistently do self audits that you realize, is this really what I want to do? You mm-hmm. be real with yourself. You be honest. Um, maybe you decide what you want to do and put it up somewhere. Remember, so you all, all constantly remind yourself why you wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure, again, chase what you love, love what you chase. Make sure you audit yourself and make be real honest with yourself and continue to do that. Maintain that passion as best as possible. Because at the end of the day, at a high level, um, there's to get from level five to level six is just standard work practices. To get from level yeah. six to seven might be a skill thing. To get to level eight to nine comes back to simple passion. Yeah. Like it's crazy. Like that is a hump. Like, all the A&R and all the managers that I'm working with at a higher level on bigger, the biggest projects that I've ever worked on, at the end of the day, the one thing that we consist, consistently talk about is that we're still somehow through all of the bullshit that we've had to deal with, we maintained a total, pure, almost naive love for music. Yeah. And that is something that most people lose towards the end of their career by the time they start figuring it out. So just be self-aware with all that stuff. Um, it's okay to do music as a hobby. We're huge proponents and advocates of music as a hobby. This is something that you can do till you die. You yeah. don't get injured and, and stop. You know how many people music? I know that like they're retired, but they still record from home, like different groups just for the fun of it. Like they just find a group. They're like, Oh, but you guys really can't afford to record. It's like, no, it's like, I really like your music. You know what? I'll help you out. You know, and they just do it for free from home. It doesn't have to be the most complicated setup. They just know that they really enjoy who they're working with. And they're like, I don't mind doing this one for free. Amen. So on that note, um, thank you again for listening to this episode. Go check out our discounts and offerings, our sponsors, things like Sp- File Pass, Loudon Audio, Plugin Boutique, mm-hmm. Sweetwater. These are all sponsors of the podcast. Again, mixingmusicpodcast.com and our resources tab will show you all of our current discounts and running running things at the moment, um, book recommendations even, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> something unique to us. Another thing as well is if you like this sort of stuff, but you want more exclusive uh, technical content about how to use a compressor, how to get louder mixes, things of that nature, um, sign up for exclusive podcasts for... $4 a month or $40 a year, we do exclusive episodes, hidden behind a paywall, that you we only talk about technical tips. Short, sweet episodes. We pull interviews from other engineers and producers, and we break it down in terms that are practical for you to apply to your next session. Hmm. We have a large list of current um, subscribers, so go ahead, check that out, mixingmusicpodcast.com slash exclusive. Lastly, this is super important if you stick around this long. If you listen to 
maybe five of our episodes in a row, if you've been binging our content and you haven't taken the time to do a five-star review for our content, that goes such a long way. On Spotify, you can only rate five stars. You can't leave a few words, but if you can leave a few words like on Google and Apple Podcasts, just say a couple sentences of what topics you'd like to hear, what you liked about these episodes so we can we can make more of those types of content, but also just saying a few words and posting a proper review actually boosts our podcasts in the algorithm. Um, and it helps reach, helps us reach more people. And if we've given you any sort of value, this is the one way that you can give us value back. So we really, really appreciate that. And on that note, happy mixing my friends and stay saucy. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.